0: Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we ask that you will join us to enlighten our minds, help us discern the truth from error, draw near to us, that our hearts will be filled with your love. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Uh, a couple of announcements uh, for those of you who have friends in different parts of the country that might be interested in coming to one of our seminars, we, I was speaking in March 11 and 12 at, at Village Church in College Place, Washington, March 11 and 12. Uh, April 1 and 2, I'll be at the uh, Spring Branch Hispanic SDA Church in Houston, Texas. And then May 18 and 20, I'll be at the... Uh, The Struggle is Real conference at the Seacoast Church in Charleston, South Carolina. And that, there's a link on here where people can register. It's actually going to be a a three-day seminar down there. I'll be just one of many speakers at that event. And then last week I was privileged at being at the Agape Project Love and Transformation Symposium in uh, Scottsdale, Arizona. I was one of probably a hundred thought leaders from around the country that they brought in. Uh, I was the only SDA there. And the entire focus of the event was the transferring power of love and how love is the key to actually experiencing real genuine change. It was really a fantastic event, really inspirational. The reason I got invited is because they read my books focus on the power of love and how love actually changes brain structure and even genetic expression and so forth. And So that's why I got invited. They actually created a Facebook page for their project three months ago, and they already have over 8,000 followers on their Facebook page, so it's really something that seems to be taking off. All right, today's lesson, we're doing Peter on the Great Controversy in our uh, study guide, Rebellion and Redemption. And the memory text this week is from First, first Peter 2.9, and it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As you hear the text, did you break it down in your mind? What does it mean? This is quite a profound text. You understand the context, history. When, when he's writing, what, he, what the subject matter is—a chosen nation. He's telling these people. Well, up until the time of Christ, had God already had a chosen people? Who were the chosen people? So, the Abra- right, children of Israel, Abraham and his, and his and his descendants. But notice what Peter is saying here. Now, Peter is a Jew; he's a he's a, a descendant of Abraham. But he's saying to the people that they are the chosen people. The people he's writing to are chosen. They are a royal priesthood. He's saying that that the chosen are no longer Israel. If you understand what he's saying here, it's quite profound. It's a complete shift for a Jew to be able to write and say, "Hey, you know what? I was born a chosen person." But now, it's through Christ that you're a chosen person. It's quite profound. Some fail to understand this even today, that, that, that Christ is building a spiritual kingdom, and they actually still think genetics are what matters. And, and so they don't understand what Paul, Peter is writing here, and so they look to the nation in the Middle East, and they think that that nation is God's chosen, chosen nation. But I want you to look at the methods that that nation practices, the nation of Israel today. Do They practice the message, methods of Jesus Christ? Or do they practice the same methods every other nation in the world does, which is coercion, deceit, threats, intimidation, force of arms? These are not the methods of of Jesus' kingdom. He said, if my kingdom is not of this world, if it were, my, my followers would fight. Further, when Peter uses the term nation, is he referring to a specific territory with physical boundaries, national identifiers like flags? Is he talking about physical land? Is that what he's talking about when he says nation? But he's talking about something else. Peter is speaking of a nation without physical boundaries, a nation made up of individuals who share something in common, a character of love for God and a character of love for others. As Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 3.20, this is what Paul wrote. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await the Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you think it means to be chosen generation? That's the that's the New King James verse version that they quoted here. A chosen generation. You think that was a unique title <laughs> in the world's history? The way it's translated in the New King James, it would make you think that. But in the more other translations like NIV and uh, and Good News, they translate it as your chosen people. Your chosen people. The Greek word for generation or people is genos. What do you, what words do you think we get from genos? G e n o s. Genos. genos. Genetics. How about generation or genes? What 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 is translated in the Bible? it's translated lots of that word. Genos means descendants, people, generation, kind, kindred, race, nation, sort. That's what it means. So, is is in speaking of a is is Peter writing your chosen generation, a chosen people to a specific like the millennials? Like the, like the baby boomers, a specific group that was born at a specific time? Or is he talking about a specific people that are, are chosen by their traits of character? What does chosen mean? Selected, okay. So when you consider the Jewish nation prior to the time of Christ, they were chosen, yes. For what? Was God saying to, the, to Abraham and his descendants, I have chosen to save you and not the rest of humanity? Was it a selection for salvation? How about when God chooses Christians and you're a chosen people? I've chosen you for salvation and not the rest of humanity. People who think this way forget John 3.16. For God so loved the Jewish nation that he gave... Wait, that's not what it says, is it? For God so loved the world. The world, the entire world that he gave his son. See, his plan of salvation is for all humanity. So then, what are these choosing for if he 's not choosing the Jewish nation for and let 's still think old testament times if he didn 't choose them for salvation, what did he choose them for? for mission, yes for mission for, to be messengers to be ambassadors to to teach the truth. If you think through history, there were people chosen people and groups chosen for lots of things. Abraham was chosen to be the father of many nations. Jacob was chosen to be the avenue through which the teaching plan would his family would be the avenue through which the teaching plan and the Messiah would come. Moses was chosen to be a deliverer of the people Israel 's nation was chosen to be as you say god 's representatives his ambassadors the, the priesthood to teach this plan, but they failed and they rejected their calling. Christians were then chosen you see if the if, if the Jews would have done their job. What would have happened at the time of Christ? They would have accepted Christ. They would have accepted the truths that he came clarifying all the symbols, all the the systematic stuff that they'd been taught. They would have reinterpreted that and understood the true meaning, which if you look at the Gospels, you see Christ constantly trying to reinterpret the way they understand it into a reality-based understanding. But they rejected his teaching. But if they would have accepted it, they would have been promoting that message too, just like the apostles were all Jews who became followers of Christ, and the rest of the Jewish nation would have been just like the apostles, Jews who became followers of Christ, and they would have gone out just like the apostles and converted the world to Christ. That's what what would have happened. But they didn't do that. Understand that one did not have to be a member of of, uh, the Jewish nation in the Old Testament times to be saved. Think about the patriarchs before Abraham. They weren't descendants of Abraham. Or Melchizedek, who Abraham paid tithe to. Or Rahab, who was a prostitute in the walls of Jericho. Or Ruth, who was a Moabitess. Or Naaman, or Nebuchadnezzar, or Queen of Sheba. We have many examples of people in Old Testament times who came to salvation who were never part of the Jewish nation. And who never took part of the uniqueness of their culture didn't sacrifice animals in the temple, things like this, which were not necessary for salvation. Many people think you're saved in Old Testament time by sacrificing animals. No, you weren't. You could be part of the play. You could go on stage. You could be an actor in the drama. You could act out the plan through the system designed to act it out with a costume and a, and a prop. But that had no sal- saving power. Read the book of Hebrews. It had no power to change the heart, no power to cleanse the conscience. So the same memory text from from The Remedy. But you who trust God and build upon the stone are a select and special people, royal ministers of God's healing remedy, a clean and purified nation, a people whose hearts and minds are in unity and oneness with God, who with words and lives may commend him, who called you out of darkness of fear and selfishness into the wonderful light of truth and love. Sunday's lesson. The lesson explores the meaning of going from darkness to light. 1 John 1, 6-7 says the following, If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie, and, and we do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins. All sin. Question, what is darkness and what is light? Absence of light is darkness. Absence of light is darkness. So when you hear this idea of darkness, if you claim to have fellowship with him, you walk in darkness, we lie. What could be also, um, not, uh, as a metaphor, not walking with Christ, then you're in darkness, as if with Christ, then you have light. Then. Yes. So then think about a time in human history known as the Dark Ages. What made it dark? Did, did it make it dark because those people did not believe in God? Were these godless people? Were these atheists and agnostics, is this what made it dark? Or were these very religious people claiming a belief in God? So was it godlessness in the sense that made the dark ages, or was it that the idea of God got so corrupted? Hmm that their minds became darkened. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, talking to the people in his day, that they exchanged a the truth of God for a lie. They preferred images made with their own hands to the knowledge of God. They didn't think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. And this is what Paul says in Romans. Therefore, their minds became darkened, depraved, and futile. So the Bible is making a case that if you internalize beliefs about God that are false your mind becomes darkened. Is there any scientific evidence to support that? Well, in psychiatry and psychology, they call it modeling. In the Bible, it's called, by beholding, we become changed. We actually become changed based on what we admire, esteem, value, watch, assimilate, spend time ingesting into our database. It changes us. Neurobiologically, we rewire our brain. You remember the studies? Newberg and his group took people 65 years of age and older, had them meditate 12 minutes a day on a God of love. For 30 days, just 30 days, 12 minutes a day. Prior to the meditation, they took brain scans and measured the size of the part of the brain where you experience compassion and empathy called your anterior cingulate cortex. Took baseline measures of, of heart rate and blood pressure and did standardized memory testing. And then 30 days later, meditating 12 minutes a day on a god of love, on an MRI scan, their anterior cingulate cortex was larger. It actually grew. And because of the way the brain is wired, when your anterior cingulate cortex is active, it turns off your fear circuitry, your amygdala, so your, their heart rates and blood pressures were lower. Perfect love, casting out fear. That's how your brain is wired. And you've probably have experienced this if you've been in a moment where you genuinely love someone else. You really had that moment. I love this person with all my heart. How much fear did you have? See, it turns off the fear circuitry. So they had lower heart rates and blood pressures, and they had a 30% improvement in memory testing in 30 days of meditating 12 minutes with the God of love. Then they had to meditate on an angry God, wrathful God, punishing God. Guess what? No growth in the anterior cingulate cortex, no improvements in heart rate and blood pressure. Only meditating on God was actually restorative and healing neurobiologically. In addition, when you, when you have those changes, understand those changes happen because epigenetic modification is happening in your genes. You're turning on neurotrophins. You're causing neuronal re- your growth. You're expanding neural connectivity. You're actually affecting gene expression based on a change in worship. This is quite profound. They've done studies on cognitive therapy. Cognitive therapy is a truth-based therapy. Studies on individuals with um, breast cancer. And they looked at um, putting individuals in a cognitive-based therapy versus a just a simple support group as a control. And they looked at then uh, gene expression in their white blood cells. And those who got the cognitive truth-based therapy actually had upregulation in anti-inflammatory genes and, um, and downregulation in pro-cancer-causing genes. And just the opposite happened in those in the, in the control group. So it was this truth-based therapy was actually redu- reducing the risk of, of cancer. So several, and there's multiple studies that show this, changing your thought processes and how your brain thinks and wires based on what you worship actually changes you. By beholding, you become changed. It's physical. So with that in mind... I came across this uh, quote in a book called Christ Object Lessons, page 415. It starts by quoting Isaiah and then an a, uh, a expansion of what Isaiah says. Here's Isaiah. Behold, darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people, but the Lord shall arise upon thee and his glory shall be seen upon thee. It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. Men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misinterpreted. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating, illuminating It's like light, right? Illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. What do you think that message is? His character is to be made known. Into the darkness of the world is to be said the light of his glory, of the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. And I love that. It was just exactly what this symposium was talking about last week from people from all over the country talking about the the, the power of love to heal and transform. Do you think that the predominant message in Christianity is a message of love? Now, I've never been to a Christian group where I've asked the question, just if you ask the question, how many believe God is love? 99.9% of all the hands go up. So so just asking, do you believe God is love? Most people say that. It's when you actually get down to functionally, well, how does he work? Well, what will God do if you do this? How does God act if you do that? And then you see simply a whole lot of other things coming in. Uh, Paul, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, talking about the end of time, writes, writes these words. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power. Have nothing to do with them. When you look around the world today, does this describe what we see in the world today? pleasure seekers just watch the political race going on right now seriously i mean talk about proud boastful abusive ungrateful lovers of themselves unforgiving slanderous i mean does that describe the political debate you see it does the ones i'm watching most of the time not every one of them but you can sure see a lot of that notice though that paul is not talking about atheists here He's not talking about they they deny God and don't want to worship. They have a form of godliness. These These are religious people. You know, there's not one candidate that I know running for office right now that says they're an atheist. They all say they're Christian, every one of them. And look at what they're doing and how they treat each other. That's why one of the candidates in the recent thing, he said, look, he used the word fruit salad. It's evidently been bouncing all over the thing. He said, they asked him about uh, what he would look for in the Supreme Court Justice. He said he'd look at the fruit salad of their life, meaning he'd watch to see how they treat people, how they live and the things they, rather than what they say. What is it that breaks the power of love? If you love somebody and you really love them, what can break that power? Oh. That's right. Lies believed. You, you love somebody? Belief in a lie. Not the be- just a lie, just a lie but the belief it. in the lie. Thank you. <laughs> if you. If you have that loving relationship and somebody tells you a lie that your spouse is having an affair, but they're not, but you believe the lie, does something inside you change. You see? That lie believed breaks the circle of love and trust. And that results in fear and selfishness. I'm afraid. I'm afraid you're with somebody else. I'm afraid you're going to hurt me. I'm afraid you're going to bring me a disease. I'm afraid you're going to ruin my... Blah, 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 blah. And so I have to watch out. I, I don't trust you. I've got to watch out for me. Fear and selfishness, known in the world today as survival of the fittest. The drive to survive, to protect self. It's just the opposite of the principle of love. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. This is how we know what love is, that Christ gave his life for us, and we ought to give our lives for our brothers. Revelation 12, describing those who are ready to meet Christ, Revelation 12 verse 11 says, These are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. It's just the opposite of this drive to watch out for number one all the time. And what is the core, most fundamental, foundational lie operating in Christianity today that undermines people's ability to experience the power of God in their life? Remember we read Paul. They missed the power thereof. What's the number one lie? It's rooted in something else. It's rooted in another premise. And this premise is so deeply buried, most people never even see it. And the premise is that God's law functions no different than the laws that created beings can make. See, my view of God is he's creator. He builds space, time, light, gravity, energy, life, minds, relationships. He is the builder of reality. His laws are the laws of thermodynamics, the laws of gravity, the laws of liberty, the laws of worship, modeling we talked about. There's so many of these design protocols upon which life is built. The law of love being the greatest, the principle of giving, every breath you take, you give away carbon dioxide, and the plants give back oxygen to you, a never-ending circle of giving upon which life is built. And think about breathing. Doesn't it feel good to breathe? You see? But you could still selfishly hoard your carbon dioxide to yourself, put a plastic bag over your head, transgress the law, and the wages of doing that is? Now you understand scripture. This is what God. But when we exchange this design law for... Well, we can't create reality, created being. We can't do it. So what do we do? We make up rules. And then with those rules, we use power to coercively threat. You better, and if you don't, we're going to keep track, we're going to punish, we're going to kill, and we threaten. And this idea infected Christianity. If you look at the New Testament church and read the New Testament, all through the New Testament, you're going to find everywhere. If you keep the royal law found in Scripture, to love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing what is Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and neighbor as yourself. All law hangs on this. Those are Jesus' words, not mine. You'll find it in com- the New Testament church. How did they live? They were communal. They gave of, uh, of their resources to help those around them. And they died as martyrs. They didn't go to war. They didn't try to get the right senators elected. They didn't try to get a new governor appointed in Palestine. They didn't become political activists. They gave and they loved. And, and what happened? Christianity took over the world 150 years by loving others. And then what happened? Constantine converted. Legislation came in. Let's make let's legislate Christianity. And this idea came into Christianity that has never been fully removed, that God's law functions like our law. It's a system of rules that he has imposed. And therefore, he has his recording angels going through, <laughs> keeping track of every break in the rule. And somebody has to pay the penalty because when you break the law, you have to have punishment. If you don't have punishment, there's no justice. And so somebody has to be punished. So God sent his son, and he punished his son instead of punishing us. And if you accept that payment, then you can have that payment applied to your account in heaven. Does this sound familiar to anybody? It's all based on an arbitrary law construct. Yes. Well, says, the memory verse makes it clear that when people gain light, it is a healthy thing for them to share this with those still in darkness as they brainstorm with those whom also have light. They need to press together for any whom claim to have light, we should be approachable to confirm we pass on light And not darkness to others. Yes. So this is a great comment. This is one of our online listeners uh, texted in. This idea that when you have truth and have a heart that loves truth, you're not afraid for new data, new information, new facts to come to evaluate. This is how physicians are. Physicians are constantly reading the journals, constantly looking for the latest evidence, constantly looking for the understanding that our knowledge now is partial. But there's going to be more knowledge coming down the pipe, and we want to grow in that knowledge. We want to grow in our understanding. We have nothing to fear from new evidence and new truth. And and so this is a mindset that is seeking the light rather than we have the truth, this is the way it is, we can't tolerate any ideas that are divergent from our ideas, and we will crush those and shut those down. That That's not the, the healthy approach, so back to this design law imposed law, yes, sorry right, were, were you able to present any of this natural versus imposed law antagonism at the, the conference last at week? the symposium now, the symposium, I was not one of the speakers they had they had multiple times they had um, uh, group discussions where we all got to discuss together, and at several of those, I stood up and I presented this idea, and it was very well received, yes, very well received, and so And let's see if we can't kind of bring this home and see the infection in Christianity that obstructs. And the question we're trying to unpack here why is it that Christians have no power? Why is it they have no power? They have religion, they have belief, they have the Bible. Why did Paul say they would have a form of godliness, but no power? Well, instead of just going through my notes, let's think it through together. What is it that God wants from us? From us. What does he want from us? Love. Love and. I heard it. Love and trust. Now think through, guys. Can you get love and trust by using power? God is all-powerful. But what he wants from us, that's why Zechariah 4.6. What Zechariah 4, six says? Not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. And the Spirit is the Spirit of truth and love. And truth wins you to trust and when you trust, you open the heart and you experience his love, and love awakens love. This is how reality works. You can never, if you, if you doubt me on this, try it on somebody. Go to somebody that you have power over and order them to love you or else. I command you. I'm going to run for president because I want to be loved, and when I become president, I'm going to tell the world, you better love me or I'll nuke you. <laughs> I have the most power in the world now, and I'm going to get love by threatening to nuke them. Will you get love this way? Well, just drop the nuke down to a pistol. (laughs) No. No, you can't get... God has all power. He cannot get our love by using power. Think through many Christian teachings that has gotten the role of saying something like this. Love me or I'll kill you. I love you so much I sent my son to die for you, to pay for your sins, but if you won't accept his payment and you don't love me in return, I will torture you in hell for all eternity. Try that on your spouse. I love you, sweetie. You are the cutest I've ever met. I, I love you so much that if you ever don't love me, I will come in while you're sleeping, pour gas on you and light you on fire. That's how much I love you. You won't get more love, I promise. If you, if you won't, it won't work. So notice functionally how these laws differ. Deviation from design law is incompatible with life. There's so many of them. Deviation from Imposed law is not incompatible with life. So if you go 35 in a 30 zone, there is no built-in consequence. You have to have some authority catch you and impose a punishment upon you. If they don't, there's no consequence. Okay. Deviation from design law requires the designer to intervene in order to heal and to fix, lest if the designer doesn't act, you will die. Deviation from imposed law requires the ruler to execute A punishment, lest unpunished rebellion ensue. Deviation from design law, the problem is sin in humanity. Deviation or defect in the human being, that's where the problem resides. Deviation in imposed law, the problem is anger in the ruler. God is angry. Deviation in design law, the mission of Christ is to fix what's wrong in human beings. Now think this through. When Adam sinned, did God get changed? Did God's law get changed? Did the condition of humanity get changed when Adam sinned? So however you describe the mission of Christ, understand its action has to be in the human species. It's not in God because he didn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His law is constant. It doesn't change. But human beings are now deviant from the design, living dead in trespass and sin, out of harmony, in a terminal condition. Thus, the human species has to be changed. So Christ's mission was to fix what's wrong in human beings. But under the imposed law... Christ's mission is to pay a legal penalty to God and assuage his wrath. The key under design law, the key, is transformation of heart of the sinner. The key under imposed law is legal adjustment in the record books. Under design law, God is viewed as healer, and thus people can pray as David did. Search me and see the wicked way in me, O God, Created me a clean heart, renew a spirit within me. But under the imposed law, God is viewed as executioner and judge. Judge and executioner. And thus, most of the Christian doctrines that you have been brought up with, if you look at how they function, what action, what, is the, what are they functionally doing for you, most of them are working to protect you or hide you from God rather than reconcile you to him. Christ is the intercessor, pleading to his Father, my blood, my blood, Father. Because why? Because the Father needs to be worked on. Or, covered with the robe of righteousness. When the Father looks at us, he can't see us. He can only see the robe of his Son, who who covers our wickedness. I call this the candy-coated rotten apple theory. Take a rotten apple and coat it in candy. It looks beautiful on the outside, but it's still rotten in its core. This is not what it means. This is not the metaphor of robe of righteousness. If you read in in Zechariah, when it talks about the high priest and the angel and the accuser and taking away his filthy garments and putting on garments, it says right in there, I have taken away your sin. We get new heart and right spirit. I write my law in the heart and mind. We get reborn. We have circumcision of the heart by the spirit. We take out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. Covering in the robe of righteousness is actually having a heart that comes into unity with God that we live his life. It's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become partakers of the divine nature. This is actual transformational. So Love Transformation Symposium was very, really powerful. It moves away from this legal, artificial thing that has no power. And so when I was taught in medicine that if your diagnosis is wrong, your treatment is usually wrong. That's what I was taught. So diagnosis is critical. If we diagnose that the problem in sin is a legal problem with God, then the treatment we bring people is a legal solution. And it has no power. Because that's not the problem. And that's the state of Christianity today. Regardless of denomination, all denominations suffer in this way. Including ours, including ours absolutely. Ours is terribly infected with this idea. And then what happens is, according to Christian Encyclopedia, Christianity is broken into 34,000 different groups. 34,000 different Christian groups arguing amongst themselves who has the right interpretation of the law. It's ridiculous. You know, Christians never get together and argue whether they have to breathe in their church or not. Whether gravity works at their church or not. You know, design law, when you come back to design law, how things were built, it brings unity. It doesn't matter. So, Christians moved away from law of love design law law of worship law of liberty all these design laws they moved away from that constantly converted they came into the imperialistic law construct rules are broken rules must uh, justice requires we must punish lawbreakers this is what justice looks like and so what happened instead of instead of justice to the old testament which was Delivering the oppressed rather than punishing the oppressor. Remember all that justice, all those quotes we went through before about do justice to the widow and the orphan, uh, deliver those who are oppressed, all these texts of the Old Testament. Rather than doing that, which is delivering those that are... We went to this idea that, that sin is breaking the rules and justice requires punishment. And then what did Christianity do? The Crusades, the Inquisition, indulgences, burning people at the stake, arbitrary beliefs and rules, the Dark Ages. We went into darkness. What about today? For those that don't know, across the landscape of America, child abuse rates in Christian homes are no different than non-Christian homes. Spouse abuse rates in Christian homes, well, for women, the, if a woman marries a Christian man, her likelihood of being physically abused by her spouse is no different than she marries a non-Christian man. And that rate is four to six times higher for a woman four to six times higher for a woman than for a man. So the rates of women being abused by their husbands is higher than the rates of men being abused by their wives. But if you just look at the rates of men being abused by their wives, if a man marries a Christian woman, his likelihood of being abused is two to four times higher than if he marries a non-Christian woman. Not higher than a women, but higher than just in that context. Uh, pornography use is no different in Christian homes and non-Christian homes. Addiction rates are no different in Christian homes. Anxiety disorders no different in Christian homes. Teen Christian teens have higher rates of alcohol use than non-Christian teens. Suicide rates? I haven't looked at the suicide rates. I think suicide rates are actually lower, particularly among Catholics. It's lower because it's a mortal sin, and they're afraid they're going to go burn in hell forever. And so the fear of burning in hell keeps reduces that rate. Why is this happening? Because Christianity is infected with a lie about God's law and character, and thus they misdiagnose their problem. My problem is I'm in legal trouble, I've accepted the blood of Jesus as my payment, and if the blood of Jesus is applied to my accounts, all my sins, past, present, and futures have been applied lied to Christ, I've, I've been saved, and so, so they, they're looking for a legal solution, they're not looking for transformation of life. This is what I told them at the conference last weekend. I said, this is why Christianity is stuck. is because we're telling young people, we're telling people that all you need to do is get legal accounting for your condition. And then you're good. Monday's lesson... 1 Peter 4, 1 through 7. Notice how this takes off in other ideas. Now, the lesson actually comes up, asks us to read 1 Peter 4, 1 through 7. They stop one verse short of what I think is the critical verse. So we're going to read verse 1 through 8. Here's verse 1 through 8. And keep all what we talked in mind. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who suffered in his body, notice these next words, is done with sin. Interesting. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge in with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse upon you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to the men, to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear minded and self controlled, so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, let's examine the first the verse, the first verse first. What does it mean? If you suffer in your body to be done with sin. Suffer in your body. It says right there, it says, Christ suffered in his body. Arm yourself with the same attitude because he who suffers in his body is done with sin. You see, if you read this through imposed law constructs, if you read this through imposed law constructs, sin is breaking the rules. Breaking the rules require punishment. Jesus was punished on the cross, and he was punished in his body by whippings, beatings, and crucifixion, and that's took care of the punishment for sin. And if you read it that way, then how do we how do we be done with sin? Well, we mortify our bodies. We get whips and we flagellate them. We get these other little devices that we crank into our. We actually mortify our bodies some way to try to stop sin. It's a complete misunderstanding. It comes from imposed law constructs. Put an arbitrary punishment on your body, make your body hurt arbitrarily to pay for your sin in some way. And and, and it doesn't work. Go to design law and understand what what he's actually saying here in design law. Peter is speaking of the conflict between what the Bible would call our fallen or carnal or fleshly nature and our renewed spiritual nature or what a neuroscientist would say our limbic system and our prefrontal cortex. Or someone might say, between our feelings and our judgment. So let's make the example of an addict of any substance, an addict of any substance, first is is convicted in their judgment. They're convicted in their character. They're convicted in their heart that this is wrong, this is destructive, they need to quit. But first determine in your mind what makes it wrong to do these substances. Is it wrong to smoke, let's say, cigarettes? Because the law says that you can't smoke and you're only 17 or 16 or 15. And as soon as you turn 18, it won't be wrong to smoke anymore. Is that why? Or is it wrong to smoke regardless of age because it violates the laws of health? And this is the big difference between God's laws and man's laws. Man can pass laws to make marijuana legal. They can never pass laws to make it healthy. That's the big difference. Design law versus imposed law. Okay, So you have to first come back and understand, hey, what makes it wrong? Because it's out of harmony with how life is constructed. So back to the addict then. If they're convicted, they need to quit, and they choose to actually stop, will they go through a period where their flesh suffers? Yes, they will. And as long as they say no to the cravings of the flesh, what are they done with? They're done with their addiction, you see? He who suffers in their flesh are done with sin. This has nothing to do with an artificial beating or whipping or flagellating one's body. It has to do with actually choosing, regardless of the sin, regardless of the sin, whether it's greed, whether it's lust, whether it's pornography, whether it's gambling, whether it's anger, whether it's whatever the issue is, if you have this impulse and you restrain yourself, the flesh suffers. Our brains are part of our flesh. yes. And there's a neural rewiring that happens. If you exercise, by the way, if you exercise the power of self-restraint, this is prefrontal cortex activating anterior cingulate cortex, because not only is the anterior cingulate cortex where you experience empathy and compassion, it's also the seat of decision-making where you go, I choose to do this, I choose to do that. And this is, uh, and then this directly impacts limbic system circuitry, which can calm it down if you're processing limbic system stimuli, anxiety, stress, alarm circuitry stuff. If you're processing it in your higher cortex reasonably and truthfully, you will calm the circuitry down. However, if you're in denial, which is the number one defense of addicts, denial. If you're in denial, then what happens is that energy from the limbic system gets sent into your orbital cortex. And what your orbital cortex do for you? It's normal function. Orbital cortex gives you a conviction of wrongdoing and tries to redirect you away from doing inappropriate things. So if you were to stand up in this room right now and try to take your clothes off in front of the rest of us, your orbital cortex would start firing and you get really uncomfortable and stressed and anxious. Don't do it. Don't do it. That's just normal function. When we're in to state denial, what happens is our anxiety, our stress, our fear, whatever the issue is that we're not dealing with, gets sent into your orbital cortex and you get... And it's normal function, conviction of wrongdoing. So you start negative ruminating loops. I'm no good. I'm a loser. I can't do anything right. I'm a failure. Why do I even try? Which only causes more anxiety and stress, which then people turn to their substance to relieve because they're overwhelmed with. And so they do more of the substance. We got negative ruminating loops going. The only way out of this is the truth. Because the truth reconnects salience network, activates anterior cingulate cortex, where you can process these things and then make healthy decisions. And then you stop feeling this false guilt and this negative ruminating loops. So what do you think of the rest of this passage? The reason we're admonished to live in harmony with God's physical health laws in this passage, don't live in debauchery and all these things, and moral health laws, is because whenever you deviate from them, you have an angel in heaven putting a check mark down, you're going to have a registry, there's going to be a a citation placed in a book, and you're going to have to answer and pay that fine. Is that why? Or because you somehow seared your conscience, warped your character, damaged yourself, hardened your heart. This is why. Whether it's physical, if you deviate against physical health laws, what happens? Are you putting yourself in a position where you can be of better service to others? Or are you undermining your health so that you will end up needing to be cared for by others? You see? This is another problem with it. We are called to be... Christ the ambassadors, to be the agents through which Christ's spirit works on earth. And the, the reason these instructions are in scripture is so that we can be in the greatest health with the best usefulness possible to carry out his purposes. So if the devil can't get your mind to disagree with him, if he can trick you into undermining your physical health, well, at least he sidelines you in a wheelchair with oxygen where you still can't get out and help people. So I'm not one of these people who think if you've smoked in life or smoked that you can't go to heaven. I'm one of these people who think if you do that, you undermine your ability to actually be of service to God and his cause. Considering the Sabbath and that same principle, the Sabbath is built on, you know, it was designed for us, it was designed on the same principles. Do you see the same kind of corollary with someone being less effective if they deny the Sabbath? It's not whether they're going to heaven or not. It's are they as effective on this earth as a result of not acknowledging the Sabbath? Well, you know, it's an interesting uh, question. First off, if you go to the Blue Zones website, Blue Zones, remember the Blue Zones, Butner's book? He went identified the five places in the world that have the highest percentage of people living to be over 100 years of age. Uh, four of them outside the U.S., only one in the U.S., the four outside the U.S., Okinawa, Japan, um, Sardinia, Italy. Um, I can't remember the other two outside the U.S., but they all had a homogenous gene pool. They all had a group of people that had, had a similar genetic background with, with longevity genes, basically. But in the U.S., it was Loma Linda, California. Very heterogeneous gene pool. And what they found common there was a high concentration of Seventh-day Adventists. And on the, on the um, Blue Zones website, which is a non-religious website, it was actually a research was published by National Geographic, one of the things he cited that was important for their longevity was a Sabbath rest. And he put it on the website that from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday, this group of people takes a, uh, a, day, of, a day a week and, and decompress, put work aside, stress aside, decompress with, and, and spend time in nature with God and with friends. And neurobiologically, this would be very helpful. We not only need physical rest, physical sleep, which is what we do nightly. We need a mental rest to decompress, to put aside the stresses of the world and allow ourselves to experience an other-centeredness. Activating anterior cingulate cortex calms amygdala. You calm amygdala, you stop inflammatory cascade, you stop inflammatory cascade, you reduce insulin resistance and, and uh, all kinds of health problems. So there's a real physical benefit to that <laughs> on the physical side. There's another aspect of the Sabbath, though. People can be Sabbath keepers and be more stressed, more anxious, because it is a day of rigid restriction. It's not a day of liberty. It's not a day that, see, there was a time in my life when the Sabbath was the worst day of the week. Yep. It was a day in which I was in prison. It was a day I couldn't do anything. It was a day I dreaded and I watched the countdown clock to be free of it. Okay? Amen. There was. Okay? Okay? But there, but I came to, to, as I grew and matured, I came to realize, wait a minute, as the Sabbath came, it was really more when I became an adult, when I was an adolescent, because there was external authority, liberty issues were being violated, I was being restricted by people in authority over me, and it wasn't a free choice on my part, and that was critical. But when I came to be an adult and I had work responsibilities, school responsibilities, and all these other things, I looked forward to the Sabbath because here's 24 hours, I don't ha- I don't have to study, I don't have to work, I get freedom, I can, it was like a vacation every week dime that I could just take off and not feel guilty about the pile of dishes or the schoolwork that I hadn't read or whatever else that I still needed to do, I could take a break every seven days, and it was really a relief to me, so it became a joy that way. That's what Isaiah says about the Sabbath, that the Sabbath is to be a delight, and if you have a Sabbath that's not a delight, then you're not actually keeping the Sabbath. You can't keep it under a sense of oppression and restriction. It has to be done out out of a sense of autonomy and freedom. Back to the bigger point of the Sabbath, to me, though, the Sabbath is uh, evidence of God's methods. If you understand historically, let me ask you this. For all the Sabbath keepers in the room, how many believe the Sabbath is eternal, with eternal meaning always has been and always will be in existence? Always has been and always will be. Or do you believe that the Sabbath was created, meaning it had a, a starting point somewhere in time? Okay, if it was created, then it was constructed. It was built, just like human beings were constructed. Human beings were built. It was created. Okay, it has an origination point. It wasn't always in existence. This is a, a newsflash for a lot of Seventh Adventists because a lot of Seventh Adventists think because it's on the Ten Commandments and the, and and they and they view God's law as eternal that they think it's always been. It's not so. There was an origination point for the Sabbath. The question is, why was it created? What was its purpose? When you understand that, then you get real insights into its blessings. Yes, I think you know the human body needs a day to reset itself to continue going from centered on yourself to centered on others. So it doesn't necessarily mean rest; it just is reset of unselfishness to giving on on the Sabbath. Like I would help someone move on the Sabbath, and I don't, I don't feel bad. Sure, sure. We should be focused on unselfishness all week. And I think that this also presents a problem, or a struggle, for people who have heavy leadership responsibilities on Sabbath. W- w- but, but what was the issue? W- where did sin begin? Beside the throne of God. Over what issue? Which day of week you worship on? Was that the issue in that uh, the, the Lucifer raised in heaven? Can you, trust Can you trust God? Now, did we already establish in here... Well, So so back, was it a question of the for say? I've discovered God's not really powerful. He's like the Wizard of Oz. He's hiding behind a big curtain back there with a lot of light display, but he has no power. Is that what happened? No, God's powerful. And we already established here today, can God get what he wants by using power and might? No, so once the lies are told, lies believe, break the circle of love and trust, beings are distrusting God now, not based on dis- untrustworthiness in God, based on believing lies about God. So, if this is what's happening and disaffection is happening, hearts are turning away from him, and he knows if they deviate from his design that they're going to go out and destroy themselves because life can't exist out of harmony with his design. He's the source of life. They're going to die. He loves them. He doesn't want them to die. What is he going to do? Is he going to threaten them? You better stay here else. No, that's only because that more disaffection. He can't use power to win this. He's, so, so the devil actually thinks he's got God in a bind. So what's God do? Well, the same thing you. If, you're, if you, your spouse has moved out because somebody lied to them, maybe their sister lied to them and told them that, they, that you were cheating and you weren't, and you love your spouse, and you know your spouse is the victim of a liar, and you want your spouse back, what would you need to do? Provide some evidence. Provide evidence. You would have to reveal the truth, right? This is what you'd have to do. If they're believing you've cheated and you haven't, you have to reveal the truth. So what does God begin doing? He begins giving evidence, and this is what you see in the book of Genesis. Let there be light. Let the firmament come forth. Let the land come forth, and God began, let us make man in our image, let them be fruitful and multiply, and as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit come in the unity of love and create, now we have this new species, two separate beings coming in the unity of love, giving of themselves to create beings in their image, and what happens if they would have stayed loyal and had children in a world with no sin? Would they have had children in a sinless world to abuse, to enslave, to dominate, to command, to lord over? Or would Adam and Eve have been sacrificing of themselves constantly for the health and welfare of their children? And the universe would have looked in and said, I get it, God didn't create us to wait on him, He, he uh, he created us to be serviced by him, to love, to pour his love upon us. Just as Adam and Eve would have had children. So, back to the Sabbath question then. You are that angel watching all this. It's unfolding. You can imagine the the crescendo building. Wow, did you see what God did today? What do you think he's going to do tomorrow? And then Lucifer says, God, I never... uh, Guys, I never said he wasn't powerful. Of course he's powerful. I mean, imagine. We can take one gram of matter. One gram. And we can turn that into energy. We call it a nuclear explosion. Taking that matter, turn it back into energy. That's how much energy is in one gram of matter. How much energy did it take to make the whole planet? To make our solar system? To make our sun? This was such a display of power. Lucifer looks at the angel and said, Look guys, I told you, he's not pow- I didn't say wasn't powerful, I said he's not good, you can't trust him, he's threatening you, he's flexing his muscles, he's trying to intimidate you. He's saying, get in line, or else I can wipe you out and replace you with new intelligent beings any time. Now what does God say under this lie? Universe, you've heard the allegations. You've seen the evidence we've provided. Universe, take 24 hours aside. I rest my case. No coercion, no pressure. Consider it for yourself. Come to your own conclusions. Because you can't get love by the exercise of might. And so the fact that the Sabbath exists, it was created as evidence of God's methods. Truth was presented in love all week, and then God rested, pulled back the use of power. Truth presented in love, leaving beings free. And so Sabbath observers are people who practice those methods regardless of which day to go to the church on. Okay, If you practice the methods of presenting truth, in love, leaving people free, you're a Sabbath keeper. If, on the other hand, you coerce people, let's pass laws to make people do things the way we want them to do, regardless of which day you go to church on, you're not a Sabbath keeper. And so there's a bigger level here, even beyond the physical rest and blessings we can get. So thanks for bringing up the question. Yes. Oh, I have so much more. Go. So was maybe uh, the Sabbath when it was created, at creation, and it hadn't existed before, is there the possibility that God, being all-knowing, knowing knowing that the human race was going to sin, created the Sabbath knowing we would need that rest? Yes. Yeah, what I'm saying is, if he's created other worlds with beings... Yes, and my understanding is... for sin, did He create Sabbath for them, or was it because He no, no, I measure? don't say, no. The Sabbath was not created. Remember, what what? Did, how do we measure the Sabbath? How's it measured? The weekly cycle. It's the rotation of this planet on its axis, which didn't exist until day four. Uh, the sun didn't exist till they formed of creation of this planet. Uh, Job chapter 38 says that the sons of God sang together for joy when the earth was created, which means there were other intelligent beings in the universe watching him create at the time when earth was created. So there was not a Sabbath in the universe prior to the planet because it was not needed. And why was it not needed? It wasn't just for human beings, even though it was for human beings. It was needed in, in a larger landscape to show God's methods. And what are his methods, truth? Love, freedom. Those are his methods. Great question. All right. So, wow, we have so, so many more interesting topics to bring up. In the lesson, it asks about, um, it says, Peter encourages believers not to be intimidated by these assaults. The Gentiles will need to give an account of themselves to God, who alone is judge, and there is no, and there is no need to worry about uh, what, what they think. What do you think this idea of having to give an account before the great judge? This is classic. Again, which law are you looking through? If you're looking through imposed law, you see the magistrate. You see somebody be. So here's the, this example helped clarify it. Think of the um, IV heroin addict who's been using dirty needles and has got endocarditis, infection of the heart. Do they want to be taken to, now they're breaking the laws of the land, imposed laws. They're breaking design laws, laws of health. They're breaking both laws. Do they want to be taken to the magistrate and have a history of all their breaches of the law and all their misuse of drugs told to the judge and have the judge pronounce judgment and sentence upon them? Do they want to do that? No. Do they want to go to the doctor and have the history of all the stuff they've done to the doctor presented and the history told? And then the doctor goes way beyond the the magistrate. The doctor looks to the deep recesses of their being, gets out their ultrasound, their MRI, looks for all the defects they can possibly find wrong. And the doctor pronounces judgment. We call that a diagnosis. And a sentence, we call that a therapeutic treatment plan. Does, Does the person want to do that? Yes, when we present imperialistic law constructs, we obstruct people from coming to God. We present him back as creator and his laws, as design protocols and our breaches in the law are destructive to us. Then we will lead people to pray like David, search me and see what's wrong with me, God, and create in me a clean heart. In other words, fix it. Fix what's broken in me. And that is the true gospel message that we have to take to the world. And it's obstructed by this imperialistic thing that causes people to seek false solutions. You can see it in our own lesson. I'm gonna, since we're running out of time, I'm going to jump now. We had some really other cool stuff in the lesson. Check the notes out. But jump to Thursday's lesson. And in Thursday's lesson, um, oh, let's see. I think it was in Thursday's lesson. Well, for, yeah, Thursday's lesson, a couple of points I want to make. One, it talks about, uh, in the third paragraph, it says, um, how we view the end of all things as we know it will, uh, will affect how we, how we live now. If we rebel at the idea of God disturbing our little world. It's an interesting question. I'm not going to give you the answers to this. You should think about how do you view the end of all things. You know, the ISIS Terror, the ISIS government terrorist group over in um, Iraq and now spreading to Libya and other places, they have a prophetic vision. These are, these are people who believe in the second coming of their Messiah. They believe that right now they're filling Bible prophecy, that they are actively seeking. This is why you're not going to win them with no sh- negotiation, because they believe that right now in the context of human history, their mission is to cause a third world war. That's what they're trying to cause. Because in causing a third world war, they believe they will set about Armageddon and Christ and their Messiah, their 10th Imam will come and that 10th Imam, when he comes, will use his power to kill the enemies of Islam and destroy them. That's what they're, that's what they're trying to incite, a world war so that the Imam will come and use his power to kill their enemies. Now, this is my point. How many Christians teach that we're looking for the end of time and for Christ to come with a rod of iron to punish his enemies? Do you understand that the ISIS and most Christians are not worshiping a different God? It's the same authoritarian dictator who is coming to kill people. This is not what we believe the scripture teaches. Does a doctor have to kill their non-compliant patients who continue to drink and drink and drink and are in liver failure? They don't have to do it. But does the doctor watch them die? Do they still die as a result of their rebelliousness and wickedness? Yes. Yes. There is death to the wicked in the end, but it doesn't come out as an inflicted punishment upon them by the lawgiver because his laws are the laws that life is built upon. They suffer as a result of unremedied sin in their own character, and their own being. And this is why it says in Revelation, they say, they pray for the mountains to fall on them. They don't want to live. They surrender. They give up. They want to die in the same way a very terminally ill patient will do. So that point I want to make. And then at the very end, in the bottom, it says, In our quest to overcome sin, to grow in faith and to shun evil and to live holy and blameless lives, why must we always rely on the righteousness of Jesus that is credited to us by faith? If it's credited to us, does that mean it's on loan and we have to pay it back? Is it just credit? Is there an interest rate on that? It's not credited. Get your mind around this. This is based on the false law construct. The righteousness of Christ is gifted to us. It is a gift for God to love the world. He credited his only begotten son. No. He gave his only begotten son. It's a legal system. It's like the room we're sitting in. Exactly. This is all based on imposed law construct stuff. We have to come back to design law and understand that that, that, that genuine righteousness is being set right in your trust for God. The natural heart According to Romans, is an enmity against God, distrustful of him. And thus, remember, God didn't change, his law didn't change. What needs to be changed? The heart of man. We have to be changed back into harmony with him. And so first is we are set right in trust, justified, set right, and then in trust we open the heart, and the spirit takes all that Christ achieved and reproduces it in us. We're sanctified. So it's restored trust, we're set right, I trust you, God, I surrender my life into your hands. The Spirit is poured in, we're sanctified. That's very straightforward. But it's all gobbledygook when you get under this this imperial law construct. You get these things that make God out to be a liar. I talked to some religious leaders uh, of a a theology program, and they said, here's what justification is. It's when God declares you to be righteous even though you're not. I said, so God's lying. (laughs) No, no, they got real upset at that. I said, you're saying he's declaring I'm righteous, but I'm not righteous. So he's saying something that's not true. No, he's declaring you righteous based on the righteousness of Christ. Christ's righteousness is applied to your account, and you're declared legally righteous even though you're still not. See, a form of godliness with no power. It's like uh, not brushing your teeth and having bad cavities and going to the dentist and saying, hey, here's what we're going to fix. We're going we're to declare that you have perfect teeth even though you don't. We're just going to put in your record because you have an older brother who's got perfect teeth, and we'll just take the uh, x-rays of his perfect teeth, and we'll put his x-rays in your dental account and record, and you just leave here believing you have perfect teeth even though you don't and you continue to get worse. This is the problem with the legal solution. It has no power. None at all. Christ actually, it says in 2 Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That we might become right, Not that we might be declared righteous. That's ridiculous. It's we will become righteous. We will be changed in heart and mind and we will live lives like Christ's love, loving others more than self. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the truth as you revealed in Jesus and for the victory that Christ has achieved in our behalf. We now ask that your spirit be poured out to produce in us what Christ has achieved. That it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We have new hearts, right spirits, right motives. Give us discernment to pierce through this blinding shroud of imperialistic law that has infected Christianity, that we can see you as creator and come back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and all that in them is. We pray in your holy name. Amen.